If your home was anything like ours as the kids were growing up, you probably had an experience like this. Our kids would go over to a friend's house to play, and sometimes they would eat lunch or dinner with the friend's family. And afterwards, the parents would almost always come to us and say, your children are so polite and so well-behaved. Of course, Tracy and I would scratch our heads. Whose kids are you talking about? We knew these little sinners better than anyone because, you see, they were our family. We weren't fooled by their temporary display of politeness or good behavior. So hearing from other parents that our children were well-behaved gave us some hope, but it didn't fool us. We knew how often they misbehaved, especially when no one outside our family was watching. And there's a lot we could learn if we were to analyze that family dynamic. For example, the power of incentives. If you behave, you'll get to play with your friends. Or the power of disincentives. If you don't behave, you'll never see your friends again. <laughs> or maybe we would learn something about parents and that we do the same thing sometimes. Impatient and harsh with the kids in the car on the way to church. But oh, how polite and well-behaved we are when we walk through those doors. Now who's scratching their heads? The kids are looking at us thinking, just a few minutes ago, you were threatening to leave me on the side of the road. <laughs> and now you're singing about the love of Jesus in your heart. What is going on? There's a lot we could learn from analyzing that dynamic. But here's my takeaway. <clears throat> People outside the Proviance family didn't always see the real Proviance kids. Nor did they always see the real Proviance parents. But the way we behaved when no one was looking outside our family was a lot closer to the real us than when people were watching. As the old saying goes, character is doing the right thing when nobody is watching. I thought about that as I was meditating on this morning's text. I was trying to figure out why Paul put these instructions, instructions for the life of the family, at this point in the letter. He's already given the Colossians instructions for the life of the Christian and for the life of the church. So why did he follow that with instructions for the life of the family? I see at least four reasons. The first is related to what I just said. The familiarity and the closeness of family is where sin is often most easily seen. Like our kids, we can behave ourselves in front of other people for a while. We can even fool ourselves into thinking that we're more holy than we actually are because we know how to put up the exterior. But the intimate, closed-door relationships of the family is where what's on the inside tends to bubble up and surface. So God gave us families, for one reason, to shine a light on the ugliness of our sin and to expose our need for ongoing transformation. In other words, family is a gift from God for, among other things, our sanctification. It is a training ground for holiness. Luther used to call it the school for character. 
And I think he was specifically talking about marriage when he said that. Number two, I think Paul included instructions for family life here because the grace of God does more than just transform individual lives as if that weren't miraculous enough. The grace of God also brings healing and restoration to entire families. There are many examples in the scriptures of entire households coming to faith after hearing the gospel. And I think there's an undeniable transforming power in a family when husbands and wives begin to learn and to live out gospel-fueled love. Love that overflows from a heart that has experienced the love of God. Entire families have been changed for generations by the transforming power of the gospel. And some of you were blessed to grow up in homes like that. Number three, Paul knows that for the Colossians to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which is exactly what Paul and Timothy prayed for these people, that more needed to be said. If Christ is supreme, and all sufficient for your life, sin is being killed. You're putting off the vices of the old man, and you're putting on the Christ-like virtues of the new man. And if Christ is supreme and all sufficient in our churches, then the capstone virtue of love binds everything together, and the word of Christ dwells in us richly, and the peace of Christ rules in our hearts. And it's a beautiful picture of the life of the Christian and of the life of Christians in a church. But what does it tell us about the structure of the Christian family? Well, it doesn't tell us a lot. Transformed individuals are only part of the equation. They're the main part of the equation, but there's more. So I think Paul included this section. So the Colossians would know the will of God for the order and the structure of their families under the authority of God. And lastly, Paul includes this here, I think, because one of the major aspects of family life, namely marriage, is a mystery that points us to a far greater reality. Christ and his bride. After writing something like this to the church in Ephesus, Paul said this about marriage. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So those are my four reasons. Mm -hmm. I think Paul included this section here, and I'm sure there are others. We're looking this morning at verses 18 through 21. And I know that some of you are in disbelief that I'm going to get through four verses. Um, what we're going to... We're going to do our best. I've already put it into the larger context of the letter, but the immediate context is also key. Unfortunately, Josh preached it last week. Verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the overarching principle. With that principle, the principle that everything, no exceptions, is to be done in the name of Christ, Paul tells the Colossians what that looks like in a properly ordered home. He is concise about it, unlike my sermons. In four verses, he lays out five instructions. One to wives, two to husbands, one to children, and one to fathers. So take note, men. If you are a husband and a father, a full 60% of these 
instructions are directed to you. So Josh showed us uh, that to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ meant this. It meant to do it through faith in Christ, under the authority of Christ, for the glory of Christ, and by the power of Christ. So in this morning's text, Paul simply takes that principle and he applies it to relationships within the family. So here's the question we're asking. How do you do family in the name of the Lord Jesus? How do you do family in the name of the Lord Jesus? And Paul's first answer is directed to wives. Now, husbands, feel free to listen. But remember, this instruction is for wives. It's not for you to pretend to be the Holy Spirit in your marriage. These are instructions for your wife. Verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. To fully appreciate what Paul is doing here, we need to remember what happened in Eden. On the sixth day of creation, God created man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. That shows us that wives are fellow image bearers with their husbands. They are equal to their husbands in importance, in dignity, and in honor. In Christ, we are all one. God then set his image bearers in Eden and said that they could eat of any tree in the garden. But there was one that was forbidden. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they ate from it, they would surely die. And as we know, both the husband and the wife defied their creator, ate of the forbidden fruit, and brought a curse upon all of mankind. In Genesis 3, God levels judgment against the serpent, the woman, and the man. And here's what he says to the woman. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now listen closely to the second half of this curse. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's in that second half of the curse that we see the devastating breakdown in the authority structure of the family. As a result of sin, there will be a struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage. The roles of men and women designed by their creator to be a beautiful complement to one another became a twisted and distorted mess under the curse. The New English translation gets at the heart of these words. You wife will want to control your husband but he will dominate you under the curse the wife will have a disordered desire to control and the husband will have a disordered desire to domineer so it's an understatement for sure but the fall radically damaged the harmony the human the unity of god's original design and structure of the marriage and the family luther talking to his students around the dinner table, used to say this. Oh, what a lot of trouble there is in marriage. Adam has made a mess of our nature. Think of all the squabbles that Adam and Eve must have had in the course of their 900 years. <laughs> Eve would say, you ate the apple. And Adam would retort, you gave it to me. And that's the curse. 
It's the background to Paul's instruction here to Christian wives. Now, before we define what it means to submit, we need to talk about one more thing. If wives are to submit, what does that tell us about husbands? What is the role in the marriage, in the family, to which the wife must submit? The term used in Scripture for his role is the metaphor head, as in head and body, like we see in Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. So what does that mean? Well, here's a good definition I found during my studies. Listen carefully. Biblical headship is the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and division. Provision. That's God's role that he gave to husbands. Under God's authority and by his calling, husbands must own the primary, not the only, but the primary responsibility for leading in the marriage and in the family. Husbands, you didn't earn this role. It's not something you can beat your chest and demand. You are merely a steward of what God gave you. And he called you to Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision. And what a delight it would be to submit to that type of leadership. So if that's headship, now what does it mean for wives to submit to it? And here's the best definition I found. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. And we'll put that back up in a minute so you can copy that down. That definition is lifted directly from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We don't have time to walk through it verse by verse, but let me highlight the main parts of the definition in that text. Verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. The word there, be subject, is the exact same word as submit in our text. So the Apostle Peter is giving virtually the identical command that Paul is giving in our text. Continuing in verse 1. So that even if some, that's some of their husbands, do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Biblical submission, then, involves holy conduct. But it's more than that. And you're going to see this in each one of these instructions. It is more than external conduct. Peter continues... Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, putting on gold jewelry, or the, wearing, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which, is, which in God's sight is very precious. So godly submission, then, is an inner quality or beauty. It is not merely external. It is an indestructible inner beauty of Christ-like gentleness, which God sees as precious. The word gentle in this passage is the exact same word that Jesus used to describe himself when he said that he was gentle and lowly in heart. 
This gentleness does not insist on its own rights. It's not pushy. It does not selfishly assert itself, and it does not demand its own way. In verses 5 and 6 now, Peter uses Abraham's wife Sarah as an example of, the, of this kind of submission. Verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham and called him Lord. Now, we're going to dig into this text later this year, but today I just want you to see where this definition came from. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. Now, that left a bunch of unanswered questions. So let me tell you what submission is not. One, submission does not mean that wives put their husbands above Christ. The context of 1 Peter 3 is that Christ has priority over all human authority. The allegiance of the wife to Christ is primary. Her submission, biblically defined to her husband, is secondary, and her submission is always for the sake of Christ. Number two, submission does not mean that wives stop thinking for themselves. Peter is speaking here to wives, not to husbands. He's speaking to strong women who think very differently than their husbands. These women are believers. They're following Christ. And some of their husbands aren't. They're clearly thinking for themselves. And Peter fully expects that when they hear, or this letter is read to them, that these wives will hear his words, understand them, and put them into practice. Number three, submission does not mean that wives stop trying to influence or guide their husbands. You see, this is, Peter actually wants them to win their unbelieving husbands. He's helping them influence them. He's not trying to stop that. Number four, submission does not mean that wives are less intelligent, less competent, or less spiritual. Wives are fellow image bearers, equal to men in importance, dignity, and honor. And often they're more intelligent, more competent, and there's a lot of evidence that they're far more spiritual than men. Number five, submission does not mean that wives give in to every demand of their husband. Again, her primary allegiance is to Christ. Just finish reading our verse. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. She must not go along with anything that is not fitting in the Lord. She does not submit to being treated like a doormat. She does not submit to being harmed physically, emotionally, or otherwise. That is not fitting in the Lord. Number six, submission does not mean that wives should be timid. Peter addresses this in verse six. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Again, biblical submission is not servile fear and it is not timidity. Number seven, submission does not mean that there is any sort of inequality in Christ. No, wives are in no way inferior to their husbands. 
in Christ, husbands stand side by side with their wives. Peter makes this crystal clear to the husbands in the very next verse. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. That is weaker in general, like as in her physical strength. Since they are heirs with you, that is they are co-heirs with you of the grace of life. So husbands, when you look at your wives, you are beholding a woman made in the image of the Almighty. She is your equal. She is equal in importance, in dignity, and in honor. And in Christ, she is your fellow heir. Every blessing in Christ belongs to her as well. This woman is no mere mortal. So, how do you do family in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, Paul's first answer is, wives, submit to your husbands. Understanding that submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband, but it is within the bounds of your primary allegiance to Christ. That is, submit, but only as is fitting in the Lord. <clears throat> if you struggle with anything that I just said about submission, please come talk with me. None of this is original to me. I'd be happy to point you to some resources that I've found very helpful on this topic. Answer number two, verse 19. Husbands, love your wives. I know the husbands are thinking, gosh, we got beat up on the first one, and it was to the wives. <laughs> We're just getting started. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Two weeks ago, Josh taught us about love from verse 14 of this same chapter. This is the same word, except here, Paul is using the verb form of it. And he uses the present tense, which means that the action of loving your wife is to be continuous and ongoing. Husbands, be loving your wives. But what is this thing called love? It's not difficult to define, but it is certainly not well understood especially by men. If husbands are to love their wives, what does that mean? The basic meaning of the word is to have warm regard for, an interest in another, to cherish, to have affection for, and, and that's a good starting point, but much more needs to be said. Shortly after I came to Christ, I was in a men's study, and we were walking through this book, it was a Christian book, that apparently was so popular that in the second edition of this book, the author said that he had sold millions of copies. Let me read just a few words from the section that was titled, The Role of the Husband. Don hid his deep feelings of guilt from his wife. He couldn't tell her he loved her because he didn't feel any love toward her. And his integrity was too high to lie about something so important. So he said nothing at all. So there's the dilemma. The husband doesn't feel love for his wife. And here's the solution that this author fed to millions of men. Quote, the kind of love scripture directs us to is 
an act of the will. It's a matter of principle, duty, and propriety. We are to love our wives volitionally as an act of the will by choice. Fortunately, he says, we are not instructed to feel in love with our wives. That loving feeling might be there, it might not. But love is not a feeling. Biblical love is a decision. How many times have you heard that? Love is not how you feel. It's what you do. Well, that is a profoundly defective view of love. Let me explain. If you divorce your action, sending her flowers or opening the car door for her or taking her out for dinner on your anniversary, if you divorce that action from heartfelt affection of love for her, you may as well keep your flowers and cook your own dinner. The wives in here get this. Why? Because the action alone is not what makes the action loving. You can have any number of motives for doing each of those activities and not love her one iota. She wants you to open the door for her and to take her out for dinner because you cherish her. Because you have the affection of love for her as, her, as your wife. You strip the affection from the action, and she may well despise the gift. Now, to be fair, the idea that love is not a feeling does have a hint of truth in it, and I want you to see it. It points to the fact that love includes action, and that's true. But then I would say, don't tell people that love's not a feeling. Tell them that love is more than a feeling. That would be fair. The second thing it gets right is that it points to the fact that mere warm and fuzzies, getting the butterflies in my tummy, having sweaty palms, does not mean love. That's true. Love is much deeper than those surface physical manifestations, things that my hero Jonathan Edwards would call animal spirits. <clears throat> Make no mistake. Love is more than a feeling, yes, but it is not less. So I get objections to this all the time because my solution to that dilemma is not to tell men, well, you just defined love wrong. You don't have to feel love. You have to be committed. You have to make a decision. I think husbands need to repent because they're disobeying God's command to love their wives. The most common objection I hear is this. Well, I get my definition of love from 1 Corinthians 13. And it says nothing about feelings. It is an act of sacrificial actions. It's things you do. That's what love is. And I used to say the exact same thing. I think I was just blind. There might be some deep-seated reasons why we want to believe that love is sacrificial action and has nothing to do with feeling. But I'll save that for another day. Let's just take a quick look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Does the love chapter list actions? Absolutely, no question. But listen to this closely. 
Verse 4. Love is patient. <clears throat> Patience can involve action. But it's profoundly about how you feel. If you get cut off in traffic and almost wreck your car on the way to work and you refrain from cussing, but inside you're seething, that's not patience. That's merely an act of a little bit of self-control. You merely act patiently externally. That's just self-control. That's not patience. Love feels and acts patiently towards others. This becomes impossible to obey apart from Christ, doesn't it? Apart from a new heart, how can we even obey these things? Love does not envy. Action or feeling? Love doesn't envy. What well, can include action, but this is clearly about how you feel. Love doesn't feel or act enviously of others. I love the last two descriptions in verse 4. Love does not boast, and love is not arrogant. Boasting is certainly an action. But from where does this boasting arise? It comes from the arrogant heart that involves feeling. Verse 5, love is not irritable or resentful. Both can be actions, but they're clearly about how you feel. Finally, in verse 6, we see that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Rather, it rejoices with the truth. Rejoicing certainly can overflow in action. We can jump and clap and sing when we rejoice. But you can do all of those things and not have joy. Again, to have joy is mainly a matter of the heart. It's how you feel about the wrongdoing. It is about how you feel about the truth. And this is precisely why Paul used those examples to support what he said when he started the chapter. Listen to what he said in verse 3. If I give away all I have, now there's sacrificial action. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, it doesn't get more sacrificial than that. But have not love, I gain nothing. You cannot equate love with sacrificial action. Sacrificial action may or may not be loving, but that depends upon your heart. So husbands, this is what you are called to. Love your wives from the heart. And yes, that necessarily involves your feelings for her. These are hard words. And if it bothers you, that the scriptures command you to feel, or I think a better way of putting it, that they command you to have deep affections of the heart, it will not help to try to redefine love into a list of actions that you think that you can achieve. And here's why. Because not only would you have to redefine love, but you would have to redefine every other affection of the heart that the scriptures either command or prohibit. <clears throat> Rage, contrition, delight, <coughs> desire, envy, grief, hope, joy, peace, patience, tenderheartedness, godly zeal, and godly sorrow. And the list goes on. You have to redefine every one of those to make them achievable. No, God commands the hearts of his creatures. 
But up to this point, all we've done is focus on one side of this. Yes, love is more than a feeling, but it is not less. We haven't said much about the kind or the degree of action that's required of us husbands. One verse will do. It's the parallel passage to our text. It was also written by Paul. And this is in his letter to the church at Ephesus. It's in chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. There it is again. But how? What's the standard? Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In telling husbands to love their wives, Paul is calling them to pour out their lives for them from their heart. A far cry from the average so-called Christian marriage today. When Tracy and I meet with married couples, we like to ask them, what percentage are each of them responsible for home life? And what follows is usually a very awkward conversation about who does the dishes most of the time and who does the laundry most of the time. And uh, they usually settle in at about 50-50 if they're trying to share everything equally, or 60-40 or worse, where the wife is usually doing more of the work. Now, of course, the answer that we're looking for is 100%, 100%, where the husband and wife are trying to outserve each other every day, giving it everything they've got. That's what we're looking for. Luther used to say it like this, let the wife make the husband glad to come home. And let him make her sorry to see him leave. But as nice as that sounds, it falls pathetically short of what Paul is actually calling you to as husbands. He's calling husbands to give up their lives for their wives. Verse 19, the second half of this verse is merely an application of the instruction to love. Husbands. Do not be harsh with your wives. Yelling, harsh words, threats, and physical violence were all common in the first century as they are in the 21st century. But in the Christian family, there is no room for them. Love is kind. Love is not rude. So how do you do family in the name of the Lord Jesus? Wives have an inner quality of submission to your husbands. Husbands have the inner quality of love for your wives. And the third is in verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, kids, I have spent a lot of time talking to your mom and dad. Now it's your turn. Do you know what it means to obey? <clears throat> That's right, it means to do as you're told. It also means to follow. To obey mom is to follow what mom tells you. But if you notice, I used a bunch of words to tell you about how to obey mom and dad. I said, you must have the inner quality of obedience to your parents. Now those are big words that are difficult to understand. Yes, you have to do as you're told, but you have to do it, as they say, with a happy heart. You have to obey from the inside. That's hard to do. I heard a story once about a first grader named Jimmy. 
you went to church with mom and dad just like you this morning. And when it was time to sing, his mom looked at him and said, Jimmy, it's time to stand up and sing. But Jimmy didn't like to sing, and so he sat still and didn't get up. His mom looked at him quite sternly and said, Jimmy, you need to stand up. It's time to sing. He didn't want to, but he knew he was going to get in trouble. So he stood up and he crossed his arms and he said, okay, I'm standing up on the outside, but on the inside, I'm still sitting down. <laughs> Here's my question for you kids. Is Jimmy obeying or not? He's standing up like mom said. Is he obeying? No, Jimmy's not obeying because real obedience happens on the inside and on the outside. Now, kids, there's two more things I want you to see in this verse. Listen to the verse again. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. First, God wants you to obey everything mom and dad tell you. Not just sometimes, not just the things you like, but everything. God wants you to obey your parents in everything. Number two, it pleases Jesus when you obey your parents. And that should make you happy, too. Now, back to mom and dad. There's an inference in this verse that you, as parents, need to get. Like we saw, the fall radically damaged God's original structure and design for the marriage and for the family. And the fact that Paul here calls children to obey tells you something about God's authority structure for the family. Husbands and wives are under the authority of Christ. Children are under the authority of their parents. That means that in a Christian home, parents have the authority, not the state. Those of you who follow what's happening in our culture might be aware of articles this past week in the Atlantic and in the New York Times. Both of these articles question whether parents should have the right to know when the so-called gender identity of their children is being questioned at school. Parents are being kept in the dark, and they're being kept in the dark under the guise of protecting the children. It's not happening in every school, but parents need to be aware. This world does not share your Christian view of the authority structure of the family. And you as Christian parents cannot abdicate your God-given authority to the state, the public school system in this case. Husbands and wives are under the authority of Christ, and children are under the authority of their parents. So, what have we learned up to this point? How do we do family in the name of Christ? Wives have the inner quality of submission to their husbands. Husbands have the inner quality of love for their wives. Children obey their parents from the inside and the outside. And fourth, fathers don't discourage their children. Again, this is just an extension of the command to love. Fathers, you are to love your children, especially in the words that you speak to them. Your words are powerful. They have the power to comfort, and they have the power to heal. 
But they also have the power to damage, destroy, and to embitter your children for the rest of their lives. Fathers, love your children from the heart with your words. Don't cause them to become embittered against you. If you do, they may become discouraged. That's exactly what the text says. And they might despair of ever pleasing their earthly father. And the implications of that are vast. Let me close with these thoughts. The fall, this, all of these commands are a result of the fall having radically damaged the harmony of God's original structure and design for the family. So Paul put before the Colossians five succinct instructions for the life of their families. Wives, submit. Husbands, love. Husbands, don't be harsh. Children, obey. Fathers, don't provoke. Each one of these is a matter of the heart. They're not merely external. So if the fall twisted and distorted these relationships, how in the world can they be fixed? Well, the solution is not to redefine the meaning of love. The grace of God redeems and renews. It redeems and renews not only sinners as individuals, but it radically transforms families. How could it not? New creatures united in Christ, garnering all the benefits, the rich, nourishing sap of the true vine, where sin is killed, vices are being put off, and Christ-like virtues are being put on like new baptismal clothes, where the peace of Christ rules in the heart, and where the word of Christ dwells in us richly. How could the Christian home not be radically transformed? First, though, let's be very clear. These are matters of the heart. So what are you to do? Trying harder will not change what you truly desire at the level of your heart. The feelings or affections of your heart are not under your immediate control. You can't just flip a switch and feel love or joy or patience. We don't work that way. If you don't love your wife, you can't grunt and conjure up love for her. You can't do that in your own strength. First and foremost, you need a heart transplant. You need God to remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You need him to put his spirit within you and cause you to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. Or to put it another way, you need him to put his spirit within you and grant you the inner desire to submit, to love, and to obey. That happens when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and you bow before King Jesus and you ask him to forgive you of your sins and you trust that he alone can save you from the penalty and the power of those sins. You cannot save yourself. All your goodness is like filthy rags. You need a, purchase, a perfect righteousness, a perfect righteousness that can only be found in Christ. By his death on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of his own. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in Christ. Some of you, though, have a new heart. And yet you find yourself trapped by the sin that still clings to you. Well, I want you to embrace this truth so that you can run unencumbered. 
You are a new creature in Christ. The power of sin has been broken. You no longer have to sin. You're forgiven and you're free. The doors to that stinking dungeon have been unlocked. You do not need to sit there any longer. The curse has been broken. You are united with Christ by spiritual baptism into his death, burial, and resurrection. Pressed, therefore, into the life-giving sap of Christ, the true vine. And let the grace of God strengthen you to submit to your husband, to love your wife like Christ loved the church, and to obey your parents in everything. Oh, it's easy to say, press into the life-giving sap of Christ. But what does that look like? It is pressing into the means of grace that God has given you to inflame our affections for Christ that can then overflow into proper affections of love for others. To be clear, these, what follows, are means of grace. They are not means to grace. As you hear them, some of them are called disciplines, but they do not create grace. They do not manufacture grace. They are the fountain of grace from which you can drink deeply. So I would say first, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. richly. Soak in his word. Remember, you can eat too much, but you can never digest too well. Read and meditate on the word of Christ day and night, actively sit under the preaching and teaching and reading of the word. Pray, sing together songs and hymns and spiritual songs, whatever those are. Converse often with other lovers of Christ. And consider all the benefits of Christ's death on your behalf as you partake of the Lord's Supper in faith alongside your brothers and sisters. Use every means available to you to fan the flame of your affections for God and then let them overflow to your family. That is where you will find the transforming power of God's grace. Drink from that fountain deeply. At the cross, the curse was reversed. So look to Christ. Behold, he is making all things new. Let me pray for us. Father, these are such hard words. And uh, they leave us feeling helpless because we don't have immediate control over our hearts. And so, Father, we, we ask that you would continue to renew our hearts we ask that you would continue to do a work in the hearts of your people here this morning. Father, I know that there are husbands that cannot tell their wives that they love them. There are wives who cannot submit to their husbands. There are children who, who disobey their parents. So, Father, we, we think about these broken relationships that go back millennia. Father, we need your grace. Your people need your grace. So, Father, I pray that you would empower them. You would strengthen them by your grace today. I pray that you would bring healing to 
troubled marriages. I, I pray that you would bring healing to troubled relationships with children. Father, I pray that you would transform our families for your glory. So, Father, we want to see you glorified in our lives, and we want to see you glorified in our families, so we need you to come and do a mighty work. Father, give us the grace to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.